Hello, funny people. Thanks for joining me here today on Four Cents a Podcast. We're going to have some fun because I've got something to moan about. Stay tuned. Hello, funny people. And welcome back to Four Cents a Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Martinez-Kassmeyer. And welcome to what is the second holiday season miniseries here on the podcast. I'm titling this special miniseries, this special reading series, you know, Henry Holiday Season. And there's a reason for that, and that's because O. Henry is our subject. He will be the author who I will be profiling in this series, and I'll be profiling it in my normal fashion, as is becoming of the Reader's Corner episodes that I'm sure a lot of you have gotten used to as I've done them. And the way I will do it is, uh, at the beginning of every episode, of course, as is my usual custom, I'll tell you a little bit about the author, and then I'll read one of the stories, because that's what makes this miniseries different compared to what I did for Halloween. Um, Rather than doing one long, contiguous story, as I did with Neil Gaiman's Coraline, wonderful book that was, and a lot of fun it was to read, this time I thought I'd do something just a little bit different while still keeping in the spirit of what these miniseries basically are, which is just me reading with you. So in that spirit, I decided to pick an author who is best consumed rather than in one long, contiguous stretch of time in short bursts by reading seven of his best-known stories. And that author in question, as I said, is none other than the immortal O. Henry. So please, tune in, stay tuned, stick with me. I guarantee you this will not only be worth your time, but it's going to be a lot of fun. So, O. Henry, who was he and why should you care? Well, to begin with, his name was not really O. Henry. Like a lot of writers in the the pre-modern times that we live in who didn't have to deal with the internet blowing their cover all the time, O. Henry employed a pseudonym, a byline, a fake byline, um, a nom de plume, if you would, uh, as a way of just kind of distancing himself from his work and a way of keeping his own life relatively private. But it's true, uh, his real name was in fact William Sidney Porter. Sidney initially with an I, as opposed to Sidney with a Y, which eventually did change to, I assume, because he was a fan of Australia. Anyway, Bill Porter, Billy Porter, was actually born in Greensboro, North Carolina on September 11th in the 19... not the 19... the 1860s. Early 1860s. September 11th, unfortunately, has a completely different connotation for us these days, but it's... it's true. He was born then. This was before everything that we know has happened since then. But he was born then in Greensboro, which I think makes him the second most significant author, or the first most significant author ever to come out of North Carolina, maybe following Thomas Wolfe, who wouldn't really emerge until about two decades later with novels like Look Homeward Angel and You Can't Go Home Again. So he was southern-born, and it could be argued, since every writer's life basically informs in some way, either subliminally or overtly, the kind of person and the kind of writer they're eventually going to become. Everything eventually goes into that dark, satanic mill of your mind. Uh, All the raw material, all the experience, everything you've read, everything you've seen, everything you've heard, it all just ends up in there as compost for your creativity garden. 
How did his upbringing in Greensboro affect him? Well, to begin with, it was a turbulent upbringing, somewhat. Because when O'Henry was just three, his mother died of tuberculosis. Losing a parent at any age is difficult, but losing a parent, especially your, your mother, the one who, even in those days, was more inclined to raise you, uh, these days we try to make it 50-50, but even sometimes it's sometimes whoever the parent is at home, they're, they're the one who's going to take the lead in raising the kids. But for Porter's life, uh, losing his mother at the tender age of three to a condition like tuberculosis was a, was a, had to have been a huge blow, undoubtedly. And we also fail these days to understand just how ravenous TB was because we're so used to it ha- having a treatment or having a cure for a majority of the strains that we know exist. But back then, in the early 1900s, in the late 1800s, it was a scourge. It wasn't really until 1940s, 1950s that we finally did get that cure, that treatment in place. Uh, I mean, George Orwell... Uh, who would die 40 years after O. Henry in the year 1950, in January of 1950, died of TB. And that's how recent that, uh, that condition has been, much more threatening than it is now. So Porter lost his mother at a very early age, and subsequently he lost his father. Not physically, but he did lose him emotionally, because after his father lost his wife, uh, Algernon Porter, that was his name, and he was a very well-to-do doctor, he basically started coping by drinking copiously. Everybody has their own way of grieving, but, you know, a self-destructive path is not the best way, but it's the one he chose. And eventually he, he did succumb to the cirrhosis and the alcoholism in the end, but that was many, many years later. So Porter's upbringing was basically left down to his aunt Levy, Levy, I think it's Levy, uh, Evelyn, who was a school teacher, an ideal person to bring up a kid because she instilled in Porter from a very early age, basically tutoring him his entire life, a love of words and a love of literature. And I think his early reading must have informed his work as well because his favorite book growing up was a book called The Thousand and One Nights. We know it today as sometimes by the name The Arabian Nights or The Thousand Nights in One Night. The famous compendium of Eastern wonder tales with the frame story of Scheherazade. Uh, most of the stories have their origins, of course, all the way back in India, some of them in the Middle East, and it was just translated, translated, translated until we finally got the English edition. But is it any wonder that a man who grew up reading those kinds of short stories would eventually grow up to write so many good short stories himself? I don't think it is. Well, in due course, to all this reading, Porter eventually was able to get something of an education in turn, and he eventually enrolled in high school. Simultaneously, when he was in high school, he also started working at his uncle's drugstore. Basically, uh, if you if you have a hard time picturing what a, what a drugstore in those days was, think of the beginning of the movie It's a Wonderful Life, where the young George Bailey, Jimmy Stewart's character as a kid, is working there for old Mr. Gower and basically helps to save him from actually poisoning a patient or, or a customer. Uh, by by refraining from delivering those pills filled with rat poison, that's the kind of setting that that uh, young Billy Porter uh, was working in, and it was an ideal place for a writer to be, for somebody who would eventually grow up to be a writer, because back when retail was still a fairly respectable thing to do with your life. <laughs> You got to see every single kind of person come through. And that's exactly what happened with Porter. Every single person who passed through Greensboro came into his uncle's drugstore, and he was able to stow those people away, those images, those impressions, those sounds. Because, say, sometimes you know somebody comes in with an interesting speech pattern, somebody comes in with a very odd turn of phrase, these are useful things for a writer to notice, and Porter did, because by all accounts, 
Not only would he occasionally sketch caricatures of the people he saw come through his uncle's drugstore, but he also would learn how to imitate them, how they moved, how they walked, how they spoke, how they carried themselves. All these tiny little details um, informed his fiction later because he was able, very aptly, I think, to then translate that into his dialogue and into his chatty style that he deployed as a short story writer. So it could be said, could be argued, that even though his early life had its complications um, and its down downsides, emotionally speaking, that sense of tragedy informed him. Because even though some of his stories are quite funny, he does it very often employ a lot of situational irony, especially if he's using a twist ending. Um, and even though a lot of his characters are sort of down and out and rather uh, on the on the fringes of society, and a lot of them have very bad backgrounds, they're able to kind of recover from that. They're able to bounce back from that. So having an understanding of the joy of life and the dark side of life, the pathos of life, really helped him as a writer. And encountering all those people helped him as a writer. And all that went into that dark mill of his creative mind to eventually inform him. So even though his writing career, which, depending on where you start, the name O. Henry actually didn't appear in print until a story in McClure's magazine bared that byline. And that wasn't until 1899. But his first book of stories, which was titled Cabbages and Kings, didn't appear until 1904. And this is right at the end of his life, more or less the last decade of his life. So, again, you could argue that everything he went through, and he did have a rather turbulent, exciting life, most of it, some of it, uh, you know, out of his control, but some of it also due to his own decisions. Everything led to him to become the writer he would be. And in due course, eventually, Porter decided that it was time for him to move on um, from his uncle's drugstore. By the age of 19, he became a licensed pharmacist himself. This was back in the days when you, where I think practical experience uh, was about as good enough as a, as a modern degree is, and he had plenty of practical experience working with a, a druggist like his uncle. And around that age, he finally decided that he was going to move on and make his own way in life, because he had a profession that would guarantee him employment, and he also had a dream to be, to live a creative life, and indeed he did live a creative life. And eventually, you know, when he was in his late teens, he decided that he was going to move to, of all places, Texas. Still a southern state to this very day, so I guess, I guess that's, a, that's a tendency among southerners. They want to stay in their region. Don't blame them. I, I think everybody has their own regional sympathies, but that's what Porter did. And I think for the time being, that's where we'll stop on the life. Because things get really weird and really interesting after that. Um, that's where the excitement starts kicking in. Um, and in that case, you know, his adventures in life really do begin in Texas, with his life in Texas. But his early days are important to consider because, you know, without those early hardships, without that early influence of his aunt, O. Henry might have never become O. Henry. I decided I was going to do this special, this special series, I had to make a decision of exactly where I was going to begin, because like I said earlier, O. Henry's first official story happened in 1899 under his own name, uh, or rather was published under that name at that point. So I had to figure out what, which stories was I going to read, because after all, the man wrote 600, 600 stories, so how could I begin? So I figured I would begin at the beginning, 
with something from his first book. Now to move forward in time a little bit through his life, the first compendium of stories that O. Henry published was a book called Cabbages and Kings. If that phrase sounds familiar to any of you listening, that's because, yes, he did indeed steal it from Lewis Carroll's um, Through the Looking Glass, which was the second of the Alice's Adventures books. Um, He stole it from that famous poem, The Walrus and the Carpenter. (laughs) Uh, You know, the walrus and the carpenter were walking close at hand, the beach was white, made to know it was right and not too full of sand. Yeah, that whole thing. Yeah. The time has come, the walrus said, to talk of other things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax, of cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot and whether pigs have wings. (laughs) Such great nonsense. But it was an apt title for the book that O. Henry used the phrase for. Um, O. Henry's first book of stories could be called both a book of stories, but it could also be called a novel. Um, Cabbages and Kings. He wrote it when he was living in the country of Honduras, my home country, which is why I have such an affection for him. We have a a geographical uh, connection in that sense. He was there uh, sort of in exile for reasons that I will get to in the future. But while he was there, he sat down and and after observing the world around him, he noticed just how crazy the country of Honduras was, because it is indeed nuts. Uh, Even to this day, it's still nuts. I mean, it it would not be surprising if you saw, you know, people riding donkeys in the streets and uh, drivers, you know, driving crazily and very old school buses, really old American school buses to this day that have been converted as a form of public transportation with a special door cut out the back so you've got the entranceway and the exit route um, and people holding on for dear life to this <laughs> to the set of steel steps on the platform uh, just to just to try and catch a ride there um, it's true these are these are strange sights it's an interesting country um, but O'Henry was there for only six months of his life And while he was there, he saw a lot of things. He observed just how unstable politically a Central American country like Honduras is. And it has been politically stable for a while until about 2009 uh, when it had its first big upheaval in a while. And now there's insane gang violence down there. But O'Henry saw what he saw in, in, in those days. And he started to think that this might be good material for a book, especially since... Then, as now, people don't really know very much about Honduras, but he decided that he was going to write it under a pseudonym, that he was going to write these stories, fictionalize the place entirely. And so he created the fictional country of Anchuria. And Anchuria is the setting, the through setting, of all the stories in Cabbages and Kings which is why I hesitate to call it either a novel or a cycle of short stories, um, or a fix-up novel, even. Because the, the tendency is, with a, with a, with a fix-up novel, you've usually got more than just a setting going for you. Uh, well, actually, with any of those, you basically have some kind of through-line. Most of the stories are able to stand on their own, and they're able to kind of be read separately and indeed most of the stories in Cabbages and Kings really are self-contained and there's very little in the way of character crossover from one story to another occasionally there is but most of the time not so but the real through line of the story is the country of Anchuria and the goings-on within that country I guess two other examples of of what I'm talking about, the fix-up novel or the short story cycle, two other examples that some people might know of, or three, actually three. One would be a book called Winesburg, Ohio by Sherwood Anderson. And as the title implies, the stories are all about this place called Winesburg, Ohio. The one difference between that and most other and, and O'Henry's Cabbages and Kings, for example, is that most of the stories in that case are told from the same 
point of view character, this journalist who's kind of going around from one place to another and gleaming stories from the natives of Winesburg, Ohio. And incidentally, a, a, a connected story collection slash novel that goes along with that is Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles. When Bradbury read Winesburg, Ohio, he thought it would be really good to write something like that but put it on Mars. And eventually that's exactly what he did, writing all these different short stories that took place on Mars that eventually he was convinced if he could weave them together, they could create a compelling, interesting book. And The Martian Chronicles has never been out of print. (laughs) So clearly it was compelling and interesting, and people are still reading it to this very day. But a third and more contemporary one would be a book like Olive Kitteridge uh, by by, um, Elizabeth Strout, for which she actually won the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, all these stories concern specifically the character of Olive Kitteridge. Some of them are told from her point of view, some from the points of view of people who in this small main town know her and interact with her. Um, uh, Strout, apparently, the reason why she did it that way is because she had to occasionally get away from Olive, because if you've ever read the book, you'll know that Olive is a bit of an ornery, cr- cranky character. <laughs> who sometimes behaves badly and says mean things and basically acts like a New Englander. Um, (laughs) So there, and and she just recently released a sequel to that called Olive Again, so clearly, you know, even though I'm saying these horrible things about about her character, clearly there's something compelling that uh, Strout finds about her. Um, Anyway, so... Well, Henry decided to do his own similar thing long before any of these authors that I'm talking about decided to do it with the, with the country of Anchuria. And incidentally, as an interesting final fact about this, is that Cabbages and Kings, when it was eventually published in 1904, the first book O. Henry published, incidentally, like I said, so that's why I was hesitating earlier about where does his publishing life begin? Does it begin in 1899 when the first story under O. Henry's name appear, or does it begin in 1904? Eh, I, I decided to go with the, give him those extra few years, because uh, a publishing career that only lasts six years, that's kind of sad. Uh, but anyway, so when O. Henry published this book, it became the first book to introduce a phrase that is still used in political science to this very day, and that's the phrase Banana Republic. Um, it first appeared in this book to describe the country of Anchuria. Basically, you know, if, if you know what a Banana Republic is, as you'll be able to kind of understand it. It's a country that is politically unstable and also has serious economic issues underlying it, usually because it's manufacturing, or it has no manufacturing, I should say, that its major export is usually agricultural, and usually it's a monopolistic agriculture. Banana Republic was coined specifically uh, to, to refer to Honduras as a, as a country, because for years the national the International Fruit Company was kind of in control there, uh, an American-based company that, that determined what came out, what went in, and mostly what came out were all these fruits, all these bananas coming from these massive banana plantations where natives were working for crap wages. Uh, Unfortunately, the, the the fruit company has since gone, but the crap wages have remained. So I decided to begin this special series with one with the very story in which that phrase was introduced. And it's a story that comes fairly late, or late-ish in Cabbages and Kings, and it's a story called The Admiral. And it's this story from Cabbages and Kings, in which that tale, that word, that phrase that has since become so widely used to describe a lot of countries in the world, uh, first appeared. So, I hope you enjoy it. This is The Admiral by O. Henry, from his first piece, of first collection of stories, Cabbages 
and Kings. Spilled milk draws few tears from an Anchurian administration. Many are its lactal sources, and the clock's hands point forever to milking time. Even the rich cream skimmed from the treasury by the bewitched Miraflores did not cause the newly installed patriots to waste time in unprofitable regrets. The government philosophically set about supplying the deficiency by increasing the import duties and by suggesting to wealthy private citizens that contributions according to their means would be considered patriotic and in order. Prosperity was expected to attend the reign of Losada, the new president. The ousted office holders and military favorites organized as a new liberal party and began to lay their plans for a recession. Thus, the game on Anchurian politics began, like a Chinese comedy, to unwind slowly its serial length. Here and there, mirth peeps for an instant from the wings and illumines the florid lines. A dozen quarts of champagne in conjunction with an informal sitting of the president and his cabinet led to the establishment of the navy and the appointment of Felipe Carrera as its admiral. Next to the champagne, the credit of the appointment belongs to Don Sabas Placido, the newly confirmed minister of war. The president had requested a convention of his cabinet for the discussion of questions politic and for the transaction of certain routine matters of state. The session had been singularly tedious, and business and the wine prodigiously dry. A sudden prankish humor of Don Sabas impelled him to the deed, spice the grave affairs of state with a whiff of agreeable playfulness. In the dilatory order of business had come a bulletin from the coast department of Orilla del Mar reporting the seizure of the custom house officers at the time of Coralillo of the sloop Estrada de Noche and her cargo of dry goods, patent medicines, granulated sugar, and three-star brandy. Also, six martini rifles and a barrel of American whiskey. Caught in the act of smuggling, the slope with its cargo was now, according to law, the property of the Republic. The collector of customs, in making his report, departed from the conventional form so far as to suggest that the confiscated vessel be converted to the use of the government. The prize was the first capture to the credit of the department in ten years. The collector took opportunity to pat his department on the back. It often happened that government officers required transportation from point to point along the coast, and means were usually lacking. Furthermore, the sloop could be manned by a royal crew and employed as a coast guard to discourage the pernicious art of smuggling. The collector also ventured to nominate one to whom the charge of the boat could be safely entrusted. A young man of Coralillo, Felipe Carrera, not to be, it understood, one of extreme wisdom, but loyal and the best sailor along the coast. It was upon this hint that the Minister of War acted, executing a rare piece of drollery that so enlivened the tedium of executive session. In the constitution of its small maritime banana republic was a forgotten section that provided for the maintenance of a navy. This provision, with many other wiser ones, had lain inert since the establishment of the republic. Anchuria had no navy and had no use for one. It was characteristic of Don Sabas, a man at once merry, learned, whimsical, and audacious, that he should have disturbed the dust of this musty and sleeping statue to increase the humor of the world by so much as a smile from his indulgent colleagues. 
With delightful mock seriousness, the Minister of War proposed the creation of a navy. He argued its need and the glories it might achieve with such gay and witty zeal that the travesty overcame with its humor even the swart dignity of President Losada himself. The champagne was bubbling trickily in the veins of the mercurial statesman. It was not the custom of the grave governors of Anchuria to enliven their sessions with a beverage so apt to cast a veil of disparagement over sober affairs. The wine had been a thoughtful compliment tendered by the agent of the Vesuvius Fruit Company as a token of amicable relations and certain consummate deals between the company and the Republic of Anchuria. The jest was carried to its end. A formidable official document was prepared, encrusted with chromatic seals and jaunty with fluttering ribbons, bearing the florid signatures of state. This commission conferred upon El Señor Don Felipe Carrera the title of Flag Admiral of the Republic of Anchuria. Thus, within the space of a few minutes, in the dominion of a dozen extra dry, the country took its place among the naval powers of the world, and Felipe Carrera became entitled to a salute of nineteen guns whenever he made port. The southern races are lacking in that particular kind of humor that finds entertainment in the defects and misfortunes bestowed by nature. Owing to this defect in their constitution, they are not moved to laughter, as are their northern brothers, by the spectacle of the deformed, the feeble-minded, or the insane. Felipe Carrera was set upon the earth with but half his wits. Therefore, the people of Coralillo called him El Pobrecito Loco, the poor little crazed one, saying that God had sent but half of him to earth, retaining the other half. A somber youth, glowering and speaking only at the rarest of times, Felipe was but negatively loco. On shore, he generally refused all conversation. He seemed to know that he was badly handicapped on land, where so many kinds of understanding are needed. But on the water, his only talent set him equal with most men. Few sailors whom God had carefully and completely made could handle a sailboat as well. Five points nearer the wind than even the best of them, he could sail his sloop. When the elements raged and set other men to cowering, the deficiencies of Felipe seemed of little importance. He was a perfect sailor, if an imperfect man. He owned no boat, but worked among the crews of the schooners and slopes that skimmed the coast, trading and freighting fruit out to the steamers where there was no harbor. It was through his famous skill and boldness on the sea, as well as for the pity felt for his mental imperfections, that he was recommended by the collector as a suitable custodian of the captured slope. When the outcome of Don Saba's little pleasantry arrived in the form of the imposing and prosperous commission, the collector smiled. He had not expected such prompt and overwhelming response to his recommendation. He dispatched a muchacho at once to fetch the future admiral. The collector waited in his official quarters. His office was in the Calle Grande, and the sea breezes hummed through its windows all day. The collector, in white linen and canvas shoes, philandered with papers on an oak desk. A parrot perched on a pen-rack, seasoned the official tedium with a fire of choice Castilian imprecations. Two rooms opened into the collectors. In one, the clerical force of young men of variegated complexions transacted with glitter and parade their several duties. Through the open door of the other room could be seen a bronze babe, guiltless of clothing that rollicked upon the floor. In a grass hammock, a thin woman, tinted by a pale lemon, played a guitar and swung contentedly in the breeze. Thus surrounded by the routine of his high duties and the visible tokens of agreeable domesticity, the collector's heart was further made happy by the power placed in his hands to brighten the fortunes of the innocent Felipe. Felipe came and stood before the collector. 
He was a lad of twenty, not ill-favored in looks, but with an expression of distant and pondering vacancy. He wore white cotton trousers, down the seams of which he had sewn red stripes with some vague aim at military decoration. A flimsy blue shirt fell open at his throat. His feet were bare. He held in his hand the cheapest of straw hats from the States. Senor Carrera, said the collector, gravely producing the showy commission, I have sent for you at the president's bidding. This document that I present to you confers upon you the title of Admiral of this great republic, and gives you absolute command of the naval forces and fleet of our country. You may think, friend Felipe, that we have no navy, but, yes, the sloop, the Estrada de Noche, that my brave men captured from the coast smugglers, is to be placed under your command. The boat is to be devoted to the services of your country. You will be ready at all times to convey officials of the government to points along the coast where they might be obliged to visit. You will also act as a coast guard to prevent, as far as you may be able, the crime of smuggling. You will uphold the honor and prestige of your country at sea and endeavor to place Anchuria among the proudest naval powers of the world. These are your instructions, as the Minister of War desires me to convey them to you. Por Dios! I do not know how all this is to be accomplished, for not one word did his letter contain in respect to a crew or the expenses of its navy. Perhaps you are to provide a crew yourself, Senor Admiral. I do not know. But it is a very high honor that he has descended upon you. I now hand you your commission. When you are ready for the boat, I will give orders that she shall be made over into your charge. That is as far as my instructions go. Felipe took the commission that the collector handed to him. He gazed through the open window at the sea for a moment with his customary expression of deep but vain pondering. Then he turned without having spoken a word and walked swiftly away through the hot sand of the street. Pobrecito loco, sighed the collector, and the parrot on the pen rack screeched, Loco, loco, loco. The next morning, a strange procession filed through the streets to the collector's office. At its head was the Admiral of the Navy. Somewhere, Felipe had raked together a pitiful semblance of a military uniform, a pair of red trousers, a dingy blue short jacket heavily ornamented with gold braid, and an old fatigue cap that must have been cast away by one of the British soldiers in Belize and brought away by Felipe on one of his coastal voyages. Buckled around his waist was an ancient ship's cutlass contributed to his equipment by Pedro Lafayette, the baker, who proudly asserted its inheritance from his ancestor, the illustrious buccaneer. At the admiral's heels tagged his newly shipped crew, three grinning, glossy black carabs bare to the waist, the sand squirting in showers from the sprints of their naked feet. Briefly and with dignity, Felipe demanded his vessel of the collector, and now a fresh honor awaited him. The collector's wife, who played the guitar and read novels in the hammock all day, had more than a little romance in her placid yellow bosom. She had found in an old book an engraving of a flag that purported to be the naval flag of Anchuria. Perhaps it had been designed by the founders of the nation, but as no navy had ever been established, oblivion had claimed the flag. Laboriously, with her own hands, she had made a flag after the pattern, a red cross upon a blue and white ground. She presented it to Felipe with these words, Brave soldier, this flag is of your country. Be true and defend it with your life. Go you with God. For the first time since his appointment, the admiral showed a flicker of emotion. He took the silken emblem and passed his hand reverently over its surface. I am the admiral, he said to the collector's lady. Being on land, he could bring himself to no more exuberant expression of sentiment. At sea, with the flag at the masthead of his navy, some more eloquent exposition of feelings might be forthcoming. Abruptly, the admiral departed with his crew. For the next three days, they were busy giving the Estrada del Noche a new coat of white paint trimmed with blue. 
and then Felipe further adorned himself by fastening a handful of brilliant parrot's plumes in his cap. Again, he tramped with his faithful crew to the collector's office and formally notified him that the sloop's name had been changed to El Nacional. During the next few months, the Navy had its troubles. Even an admiral is perplexed to know what to do without any orders. But none came, neither did any salaries. El Nacional swung idly at an anchor. With Felipe's little store of money was exhausted, he went to the collector and raised the question of finances. During the next few months, the Navy had its troubles. Even an admiral is perplexed to know what to do without any orders, but none came, neither did any salaries. El Nacional swung idly at an anchor. When Felipe's little store of money was exhausted, he went to the collector and raised the question of finances. Salaries, exclaimed the collector with hands raised. Valgame Dios! Not one centavo of my own pay have I received the last seven months. The pay of an apple, do you ask? Quien sabe? Should it be less than three thousand pesos? Mira, you will see a revolution in this country very soon. A good sign of it is when the government calls all the time for pesos, 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 and pays none out. Felipe left the collector's office with a look almost of content on his somber face. A revolution would mean fighting, and then the government would need his services. It was rather humiliating to be an admiral without anything to do, and having a hungry crew at your heels begging for reales to buy plantations and tobacco with. When he returned to where his happy-go-lucky caribs were waiting, they sprang up and saluted as he had drilled them to do. Come, muchachos, said the admiral. It seems that the government is poor. It had no money to give us. We will earn what we need to live upon. Thus, we will serve our country soon. His heavy eyes almost lightened up. It may gladly call upon us for help. Thereafter, El Nacional turned out with the other coast craft and became a wage earner. She worked with the lighters of freighting bananas and oranges out to the fruit steamers that could not approach nearer than a mile from shore. Surely, a self-supporting navy deserves red letters in the budget of any nation. After earning enough at freighting to keep himself and his crew in provisions for a week, Felipe would anchor the navy and hang about the little telegraph office, looking like one of the chorus of an insolvent comic opera troupe besieging the manager's den. A hope for orders from the capital was always in his heart. That his services as admiral had never been called into requirement hurt his pride and patriotism. At every call, he would inquire gravely and expectantly for dispatches. The operator would pretend to make a search and then reply, Not yet, it seems, el señor del aberrante. Poco tiempo. Outside, in the shade of the lime trees, the crew chewed sugarcane or slumbered, well content to serve a country that was contented with so little service. One day, in the early summer, the revolution predicted by the collector flamed out suddenly. It had long been smoldering. At the first note of alarm, the admiral of the navy force and fleet made all sail for a larger port on the coast of a neighboring republic, where he traded a hastily collected cargo of fruit for its value in cartridges for the five martini rifles, the only guns that the navy could boast. Then to the telegraph office sped the admiral. Sprawling in his favorite corner, in his fast decaying uniform, with his prodigious saber distributed between his red legs, he waited for the long-delayed, but now soon-expected orders. Not yet, Signor Admirante, the telegraph clerk would call to him. Poco tiempo. At the answer, the admiral would plump himself down with a great rattling of scabbard to wait the infrequent tick of the little instrument on the table. They will come, would be his unshaken reply. I am the Admiral.
that more or less gives you a taste of what O. Henry's writing style was like in those days. Very much a master of telling as opposed to showing. He, one of the things that we no longer really do with short stories, I mean, there may be occasional author who could manage it, is we don't use this kind of third-person omniscient anymore in short fiction, mainly because we find that it kind of distances ourselves, our, our readers, from our characters and the action, and it doesn't allow us really much chance to build scenes with a certain vividness and immediacy. But in O'Henry's case, very much like Charles Dickens, in fact, and a lot of authors of the Victorian era, and let's face it, um, O'Henry was, in a, in a way, kind of, he was part of that late Victorian era, even though he was an American, but the, but the values were kind of the same to some extent. He was writing somewhat in that mode, that sort of godly mode of a lot of authors of that ilk where you just kind of remove yourself from all the action, to, to an extent. But, you know, but he manages to compensate for it with such a fun, chatty, verbose style, uh, which has its downsides. Um, and it's very dense, obviously, it's a very dense writing style. Very little, very sparse in the way of dialogue, the complete opposite of what we expect now uh, in a post-Hemingway world, you might say. But we do get the sense of an entire story. We do get the sense of the entire life of a particular person. In this case, we get the sense of Felipe, <laughs> this poor, not simple-minded, I guess, you know, but, but maybe... I don't know, I mean, he's got a skill, so maybe he's like an early version of a, of a person with Asperger's. Because, um, uh, I mean, he describes him as, you know, having all those deficiencies, deferring conversation. Maybe, maybe O'Henry was writing about a person who actually had Asperger's before we knew what Asperger's was. I don't know. Um, you know, inclusivity before we knew it. But at the same time, uh, there's also signs of his... Um, of his time period in here. You know, there's that whole paragraph where he writes about the southern races lacking a certain kind of humor, and I don't think that's necessarily true. Uh, I can vouch for the fact the Hondurans have an amazingly dark sense of humor. Uh, we owe it to the fact that our lives tend to be kind of rough, especially in certain regards, you know, financially speaking. I mean, the fact that everybody calls... Uh, Calls Felipe in this story, Pobrecito Loco. <laughs> I have to admit, every time I read that, I have to admit that um, I had to hold back a small chuckle because of <laughs> Pobrecito Loco. <laughs> That's the kind of fun with language Spanish speakers can have. We just come up with these wonderful little uh, epithets for everyone. You know, but it's, um, it's completely different. It's, uh, it's writing of a different time, but it's also fun in its own way. I mean, you don't get people writing sentences like that anymore. Very dense, very long, using this... Not elevated style, I mean, anybody can... This is fairly understandable language, it's just very dense. Um, the paragraphs are thick uh, when you look at them on the page. And again, without those breaks for dialogue that we usually find. But O'Henry, at the same time, he knew, probably long before any of us knew, that dialogue is the slowest way to tell a story. So you could get kind of a flavor of a character by what they say, but you can tell a whole story much more quickly if you put it all in prose. And it's also clear, I think, that um, this story is very connected to the rest of the stories in Cabbages and Kings. I mean, at the beginning of it, where they mention the, uh, the, the character Miraflores, 
who's an who's a character who appears or is mentioned in several of the stories is a former president who's stolen money from the treasury i don't expect all of you to understand that unless you've read the entire book but it's there so it's clear that this story is is part of a whole part of a, you know just one segment of a whole but the fact that it focuses on felipe gives it that level of independence the place of Coralillo, you know that that's where a lot of the stories in this book take place and um, it's where a lot of the characters come from it's a central location to a lot of the stories because of the it being a port town in the fictional world of Anchuria but yes this is how they used to write and there are reasons why we don't write like this anymore uh, we're not used to we're not used to such dense typography but it's still fun in its own way it still has a certain jauntiness in its tone that I think makes it appealing and of course poor Felipe you can't help but feel for him because I mean he's gone through this whole transformation of being this kind of pitied simple-minded sailor to being this grand admiral who is you know very patriotic and yet the government has him do nothing <laughs> gives him no finances uh, you, can, you can't help but feel a little bit bad for him <laughs> by the end of it because we know uh, it, again we kind of have an idea that the country is in dire straits but he doesn't know <laughs> he doesn't know what's going on he's still in Coralillo you know, looking after his ship in Nacional and just trying to survive and keep his crew going and <laughs> they're not talking to him like <laughs> the sublime joke of the universe but yeah that's the beginning of O. Henry that's where he started this is where this is just one example of it and there's more to come and I hope that if you at the very least enjoyed the playfulness of the language I have a feeling you're going to enjoy the rest of these stories because I think as he also like it is is the case for a lot of writers as he went along I think he got better at what he did and some of the later stories are, are much better, uh, or at least they're, they're, they're such that you can understand them without having to understand all this context that I'm kind of giving you now. But it's still fun. This is just the beginning, and I think, maybe, just maybe, a few of you listening to this may indeed find yourselves en enraptured by him and may consider listening or finding or reading more of his work. He's definitely worth your time. Hey, funny people. That's it from me here on Four Cents a Podcast. I really do hope you enjoyed the show and that you'll join me here again next time. Until then... Stay safe, stay healthy, and do try to remember to enjoy yourselves.